0: amen amen grab your bibles grab your bibles and turn to first corinthians chapter 15 first corinthians chapter 15 we're going to read the uh first six verses of chapter 15 and i'm going to ask you to be seated after that this is what paul says he says moreover brethren i declare unto you the gospel everybody say gospel all right, good. I'm just making sure who's with me and who's not. Okay, it says which I preached unto you, which you also have received, and wherein you stand. He says, by which also you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Now this is the gospel: how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that He was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And he says, Now he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing time of worship we've already had the, the chance to experience. And Father, I pray that as we are reminded of those words, that your, your goodness is that you've been good our entire life. Lord, I pray that is something that we, uh, it just kind of wells up inside of us because you are good. And Lord, I pray right now for all those that are watching online, those that are in this building right now, that this would be a message that would bless them, that would challenge them, that would move them in a direction towards you. And Lord, I'm asking that you would use me, fill me up like a vessel, and Lord, pour me out. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Um, listen, I'm thankful. I'm so thankful. For you this morning, Uh, matter of fact, we are walking around with clipboards taking names of everyone who is here because you get bonus points. Um, That's how this works. So you get bonus points this morning for being here. Uh, while others are at home in their warm, cozy houses, you went through the frozen tundra of Coleman, Alabama, putting on your parkas and your mink-skinned jackets to get here. And I'm so thankful that you are here. Um, now, I know a lot of you are asking, where's Pastor Malcolm? Where's Pastor Malcolm? Um, has there been any news? Remember, he made that big uh, kind of uh, announcement from the stage about some testing results and things. I'm going to tell you, uh, I have answers to both of those. Number one, where's Pastor Malcolm? He is actually in Ohio preaching at a men's meeting. Um, so y'all be praying for Pastor Malcolm. He is in his own stubbornness wanting to drive home today. Um, and so let's make sure that uh, he practices wisdom in that, uh, that he doesn't try to go through 10 foot of snow to get home. Um, but also the second part about his test. I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't have an answer for you yet. I know some of y'all have texted me and asked, did we have any results? I I don't know. Uh, And if and if I did know, I wouldn't share it with you. I would let Pastor Malcolm do that. Um, But uh, just keep praying for all of that, okay? If y'all would keep praying for your pastor and uh, safe travels and all those things with that. Um, This morning, I, I want to ask a very simple question, but a very, very important question. And it's this Are you a Christian? Now, it seems kind of like an obvious, like, I'm not church, right? <laughs> like, I'm a Christian. Uh, but the problem is, because you come to church, it doesn't make you a Christian. If I was to stand in a garage, it doesn't make me a Ferrari, does it? Um, just because you come to church, it doesn't make you a Christian. That's not how this works. It doesn't work through osmosis. And, and, and one of the things I want to try to help you understand is, what does it mean to actually believe the gospel? What does it mean to believe the gospel? Paul says, I preach unto you the gospel. We just read that. One of the problems I'm finding in today's society, and today's culture, is this idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Everybody can exercise their own truth. You believe abortion is wrong, I believe abortion is okay. We can just be different. That's what, that's what culture tells you. Hey, you believe this, I believe this. We can just disagree. You have your truth, I have my truth. And so everybody's truth is relative. You see how that can be dangerous, though? If there's no absolute, if there's no solid foundation of what truth is, that can cause chaos. And so one of the things I want to help you understand is number one, culture does not dictate what is truth. The society does not dictate what is truth. What is trending does not dictate what is truth. There is a truth, and it is the gospel. Now, one of the things I don't know if you understand if you're kind of up to this or not, being in youth ministry, I kind of of expose to things and kind of I'm not saying I'm trendy, I'm like always like six months behind everybody else. I'm getting older and things are just going so fast, I can't keep up. But there was this trend called um, deconstruction. And this is the idea that, that, that young people, like usually in their mid-twenties and younger, were posting these videos on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook that were going viral. And what it was was them explaining how they left the Christian faith. And it was all about their experience of how they deconstructed their faith. And they have left the Christian faith. And people were kind of uh, watching and, 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 and really celebrating that and, and, and making it go viral. And here's what I want to contend. This is what I want to say is if you've ever experienced the depth of God's mercy, if you've ever truly experienced the depth of God's grace, if you truly experienced the depth of God's love, there is no way you can leave that. There is no way you can turn your back on that. But if all you understand about Christianity is a bunch of moral do's and don'ts, a bunch of, uh, uh, a bunch of ethnic, ethnic codes and moral behavior changes, if that's your depth of Christianity knowledge, I could see how you could leave that. And if that is what you understand about the gospel, then I would love to have a conversation with you about how it's so much more. So I'm going to kind of go back and forth. If y'all have like one of these little bookmark things, you might want to put one on First John Maybe put a piece of paper at 1 Corinthians, but we're going to kind of be flipping back and forth between 1 Corinthians and 1 John. The reason I want to use 1 John is for this John is talking to a group of believers that there's been division. Imagine that division amongst Christians. We've never seen that happen before, have we? So there's division happening amongst believers. And you have the original believers that are worried. They're worried do we have the real faith? Are we the ones who are right? Because the group that split for them are, are, are developing basically a new gospel, a new way of believing, and they're saying their way is more holy, their way is more righteous. And they're kind of saying what, what these over here had is not the real gospel, which is actually a lie because they possessed the real gospel, but now these who have possessed the real gospel are confused, like who's right and who's wrong. Does that make sense? So John is writing a letter to them to help them understand what the true gospel is. How to know you actually possess the true faith. And so he writes in 1 John 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us. Talking about that group of believers that, that kind of separated and went and started doing their own thing and preaching their own gospel and believing their own things. He says, they went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us. For if they have been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. What am I trying to say? There are people who will leave the Christian faith who never even had the Christian faith. Does that make sense? And so people will say, well, I used to be a Christian, but I left. No, no, you, no you didn't. Again, if you truly possess the depth and the richness of God's mercy and grace on your soul, you, you can't turn your back on that. And so there's people who with their mouth say, I was a Christian, but their lives never gave evidence that they were a Christian. And so they say, well, I left Christianity. No, you left their religion. You didn't leave a relationship. And so today I want to help us understand what is the true gospel, because that's very, very important that we get the gospel right. So important we get the gospel right, because there's a lot of watered down gospels out there. And this is why they do it. They try to water down the gospel to make it more palatable, to make it more acceptable to people on the outside, they don't want it to be offensive. They don't want it to sting. But I'm telling you right now, the gospel has to sting. The gospel has to be offensive. Why? Because we're sinners in need of a Savior, and the gospel points it out. He puts it on display that we fall short, that even at your best, everything you could achieve is nothing but this but filthy rags. And that's hard to hear sometimes, it's offensive. And so people water down the gospel to try to make it easier to receive. But the moment you rob the gospel of its great offensiveness is the moment you rob the gospel of its great power. And so we have to get the gospel right. And so Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you have also received, wherein you stand by which also you are saved. I don't know if you caught that, but he says, I declare present tense, what you have received, past tense, by which you are saved. That's a present continuous thing. You are saved and continue to stand in that salvation. But do you understand he's preaching the gospel to believers? He says, I preach unto you what you've already received. These people have already received and been changed by the gospel, yet he continues to preach the gospel to them. This is so important this is very important for us to understand that the gospel is not just for lost people the gospel is for everybody in this room who claims to be a believer in christ the gospel is for you so here's what i want to do here's my challenge all right the question are you a christian are you a believer here's what i want to do i want to set the table so if you allow me for a little bit to set the table at the end we're going to eat okay but just give me a little bit of free time to set the table okay everybody good I'm going to need y'all's help this morning too, because there's like 32, all right? Um, and here's what I need. I need some ameners. I need some people that just, even if it doesn't even sound good, be like, preach, all right? I don't even, I just need something, all right? Give me, give me some energy, some interaction here. Uh, can y'all do that? <laughs> Thank you. Let's pretend this place is full. Let's fool everybody online. There's like 3,000 people here. Y'all are missing out online. I don't know what y'all doing. Let me start at the very beginning, the very beginning was asking this simple question, who is God? Who is God? Very simply put, he is creator. He is creator. He, he made creation for a specific purpose, and it's for his glory. It's to point everything and everybody back to himself. Everything that exists was put into existence by the great, powerful, all-creating, triune God. He spoke it into existence. He, he put it into motion. Everything you smell, everything you taste, everything you experience was put into existence by a God that loves creation. That's who God is. Now, because everything in creation was never meant to be the main thing, what it was supposed to do was point you to the main thing. This is why David wrote in Psalms, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The idea was when you go outside and you see a night sky and you see all those constellations in the Big Dipper and all that cool stuff out in the sky, you don't just stop and say... Wow, that's a pretty sky. You say, wow, our God is awesome. Why? Because the, uh, creation was never supposed to be the main thing. It was never supposed to terminate on creation. It was supposed to roll past creation onto the creator. Look how awesome God is. And that was the, that was the purpose of what he did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the... That means every experience of your life should be a way for you to give glory to God. Marriage, believe it or not, is a way you can give God glory. You can love your wife like Christ loved the church. Did you know that? I didn't do too good this morning. All right. In full transparency, my wife called and asked me a bunch of questions and I'm in like preacher mode. I'm like, I don't know what you want from me, woman. And I'm just like getting mad. I failed miserably this morning, but I can tell you the truth that marriage can be a way to glorify God. You know, having children can be a way to glorify God. Even you, Andrew Winfrey, you could be a vessel for God's glory. How about that, man? Parents, you can raise your kids and, and to love them towards the Lord. It can be an act of worship. Money can be used for the glory of God. Your relationships for the glory of God. Your hobbies can be used for the glory of God. My dad used to go fishing all the time. I think I've told this story before. He had a ministry called Real One In. He had a big, like, twenty-foot offshore boat, uh, Cape Horn center console, and he would go up to these docks and see families fishing off the docks. And he would have all the bait, all the equipment, all the gas, and he would say, "Y'all want to go fishing?" Now, I don't know if you ever paid for an offshore fishing trip. It's big bucks. I mean, it's like 600 bucks or more to go offshore fishing for a few hours. He would take them for free. Y'all want to go fishing? And they're like, oh, okay. I mean, it's kind of strange to go on a stranger's boat, but whatever. And so they would go, you know, six, eight miles offshore and start fishing. And then he would start sharing the gospel with them. (laughs) I mean, where are they going to go? I mean, they're (laughs) stuck. They're stuck. But that's how he did ministry. That Fishing was a hobby, but he used it for the glory. Y'all picking up what I'm saying? God's God's purpose for creation was never to be the main thing. It was supposed to roll past onto the main thing, which is God. This is why the believer should always have more joy in their life than the non-believer. Because for the non-believer, their enjoyment stops at creation. They can enjoy creation, but they can't enjoy who the creator is. And so our joy gets to roll past that. We get to enjoy who the creator is. But, you know, in all of this, I think of people like Tim Tebow. Y'all know who Tim Tebow is. A great athlete, Heisman Trophy winner. He loves football, loves baseball, played it in professional levels. And one thing we know about Tim Tebow is even though he loved the sport of football, he made sure God was a big deal. His enjoyment didn't stop at the sport. It rolled past the sport. I think of uh, uh, Natalie Grant. How many of y'all watched the national championship game? I know it's hard. I know it's hard for my Alabama fans. I know it's hard. But if you uh, watch at the very beginning, there is a woman named Natalie Grant who opened up the ceremony with the National Anthem. She's a very accomplished uh, Christian uh, singer, and and, and she made a Facebook post. He says, well, last night was a thrill. In case you missed it, here's my performance of the National Anthem at last night's National Championship game. So she posted a video along with this. And she says, beyond grateful for the opportunity, the last words in my mind before the first note was, Jesus be glorified. She says, I know it was the national anthem, but he's in every moment and can work through every moment. God bless America. In other words, she's getting up there to sing the national anthem and she says, Jesus be glorified. Why? Because that's the way God intended. He wants us to enjoy life, but also give him glory for it. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Remember, I'm setting up the table. So, who is God? He's trying God to put everything into motion for our enjoyment, for His glory. He is supposed to be the main thing, not creation. But here's the problem this is man's response. Man's response. We see in Genesis chapter 3, we have what is known as the fall of man, where where Adam and Eve were given one strict command You can have anything of this garden, but there's one place, there's one tree. I don't want you to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree. And, of course, they ate of that tree. They were manipulated. They were made to believe God was holding back on them. Their pride got in the way, and they turned their back on God's law, and they partook of the one thing God said not to take of. And sin entered into the world, and that, 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 that initial song of creation where it said, it is good, it is good, it is good, was fractured by man's sin. <clears throat> and what happened after that is that man's response towards creation began to change. Man's response towards God began to change. And so man's response, we see it in three different ways. We choose creation over the creator. You can read in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul goes into great detail about what this looks like, where, where man began to worship the creation more than they worshiped the creator. In other words, this is what man does. Man says, I want your stuff, I just don't want you. God, I want your blessings, but leave me alone. Give me the healing, but I don't really want the healer. And this was man's response. They began to push God away. Not only did they choose creation over the creator, but they chose convenience over compliance. What do I mean by this? They look at God's word and they begin to pick and choose what is for them and what is not for them. I know what the Bible says about sexuality, but this is the way I feel. And so therefore it doesn't apply to me. I know what the Bible says about having a pure relationship before marriage, but we're going to get married anyways. And so I think he'd be okay with this exception. I know what the Bible says about fill in the blank, but because of my beliefs, my values, my worldview, I don't think this applies to me. And we begin to explain the way the Bible we say, oh, well, well, this was meant for a certain people in a certain culture at a certain time. And so this doesn't have any power or authority in my life in this particular application. And so we begin to decide what God really meant to say. Does that make sense? Have y'all, have y'all seen that? Have y'all, we begin to choose com- uh, convenience over compliance. If God really knew how I felt, uh, felt, if God really knows what I've been through, if God really understood how the world really is, then I think he wouldn't mind because God is love, right? And so we begin to manipulate his word to fit our life instead of fitting our life to his word. And so we choose convenience over compliance. And lastly, we choose, we choose criticism over credit, We have a tendency in our life and in this world and in our cultures to not give him any credit for anything good that happens. But we'll sure blame him for anything bad that happens. I mean, think think about, I know this is tough, but think about the Sandy Hook shootings. I mean, that still wrecks me. I mean, that's such a terrible thing. And you have reporters and you have people, where was God? You have the tornado that goes through Kentucky, and, and you see people post pictures where their Bible is left unfazed inside their home. And, and, and yet they, they'll say, isn't God good? And you see people comment, yeah, he's so good, he, cu- he killed 12 people. And everything you see in life, any bad natural disaster, any, bad, uh, uh, any person who does something bad or, or, or evil, we blame God. God. If God is so good, why did this happen? Yet out of all the millions of good things that happen, we don't give them one bit of credit. You can see how depraved our society and our culture has become by, by comparing how much we give credit to God and how much we blame God. How much we, we give him credit for all the good, yet how much we give him credit for the bad. This was, God, this was man's response to God. Remember, God put all this in existence for us to enjoy, to point us to him. Man's response to that was, I want your stuff. I don't want you. I only want to obey part of what you say. And you, you, everything that's wrong in this world is because of you. It's pretty bad, isn't it? Now, this all creating God, as quickly as he spoke things into creation, could have spoke things out of creation. He could have have just started over. Now, this is the most amazing part of all of this is that God's response to man was not to start over. God's response to man's rebellion was to redeem us. He moved towards us. He came close to us. In the middle of our failure, in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our rebellion, He comes close. He he comes to redeem us. And this shows you the long-suffering and the patience of our God. Because if I was him, I would have started over a long time ago. But he's patient and he's long-suffering. In First Corinthians, if y'all would do this, turn to First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11, First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11. Hopefully, we got that up here for us too. There we go. Paul says, Know you not, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And he begins to go into detail about who the unrighteous are. He says, Be not deceived, neither fornicators. Now, if anybody has trouble with that word, ask your neighbor what it means. He says, Nor idolaters. That basically means anybody who worships something other than God. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be a statue. It doesn't have to be an actual figure. It could actually be your cell phone. It could be technology. It could be TV. It could be sports. It could be your family. It could be relationships. It could be money. It could be anything you prioritize over God. He says neither idolaters nor adulterers. Now this doesn't necessarily mean anybody who's had an affair. This basically means in, in Jesus' definition of adultery he says anybody who looks on someone else with lust in their heart in other words you let your imagination go a little too far you let your eyes linger a little too long he says he equates that with adultery all right now he says nor effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind this explains those who practice homosexuality are in part of that relationship he says verse 10 nor thieves nor covetous, those who have, have desires that, that are just burning inside and those who want and, and cannot can never be uh, satisfied. Those who are always wanting, wanting, wanting. He says, nor drunkards, nor revilers, those with bad attitudes, those who kind of pop off real quick. Anybody drove down Coleman lately? You can pop off real quick when you get in that Coleman traffic. All right. He says people who have attitudes and uncontrolled attitudes. And then... He says, uh, nor extortioners, those who manipulate, those who lie, those who will cheat, those who, will, who, who, who kind of will not always be truthful. He says, these people shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I just want to take a quick poll right now. Does, did anybody see themselves on that list? Anybody in this room see themselves? Now, now, the rest of you not raising your hand are liars, and that was on the list. All right, so um, here's the thing. We're all on that list. Now, what did it say about those people? It says, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh-oh. Uh Uh-oh. We're in a mess, aren't we? I mean, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 kind of puts it very simply. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, Now, the Greek word for all is all. All means all, and that's all that all means, okay? So all fall short of the glory of God. We don't measure up. We are in a mess. And the only thing we can do with our mess is spread it across our lives. We can't clean the mess. We just make the mess worse. Y'all with me? We're in in trouble. But I like what verse 11 says of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, and such were some of you. That's past tense. You know what he's telling us? There's a way out of the mess. This used to be you. But that's not you anymore. There's a way out. He says, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Now, now, how do we get out of our mess? Did we just try real, real hard? Did we just, you know, put some elbow grease and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we just tried and we set some discipline in our life and, and we made a goal sheet and we just got out of our mess? Is that what happened? No. See, if you see, it says you are washed, you are sanctified, you are, we are the one in which the action is being worked upon. In other words, you didn't wash yourself, someone washed you. You didn't justify yourself, someone justified you. You didn't sanctify yourself, someone sanctified you. In our rebellion against God, he came and washed us and sanctified us and justified us. When we couldn't get out of our mess, he helped us get out of our mess. This is who God is. This is what He's done on our behalf. Now, now, I want us to go back to 1 Corinthians 15. I know I have you jumping around like crazy, but again, I'm setting the table. I'm setting the table. We're putting the forks out now. All right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Paul says, again, remember, he's talking about I preach unto you the gospel, which you receive, wherein you stand, where you are saved. Verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received... How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Now, this is the big deal here. According to the scriptures, this means that Jesus was never plan B. If you read from Genesis to Revelation, you'll find out very quickly that Jesus was always plan A. There was no backup plan. He has been the plan since the beginning. Uh, there's a fancy word. You already learned a fancy word. I learned this in seminary. I throw it out there every now and then to make people think I'm smart. But it's a fancy word. You ready? proto Yeah, that's a real word. All right, I want want y'all to practice with me. Say proto-evangelium. Ready? You can go and use that word every now and then. I know it sounds like Harry Potter, like proto-evangelium. I mean, it's but it's a real word. It's a real word. And so proto-evangelium, proto means first, evangelium means good news. Now, why is this important? Because Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is known as the proto-evangelium, the first good news of Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Why is it the first good news of Scripture? Because right before that, you read about the fall of man, about how sin entered into this world, how man betrayed God. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you see that God is having a conversation with Satan. He tells him very clearly, there's coming a seed, an offspring from this woman. He says, you will, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. In other words, he's already saying, there's coming someone, Satan, that will destroy you. Immediately after the fall of man, God reveals his plan of redemption. This didn't take him by surprise. He knew we were going to mess up. He knew we had problems. And so he reveals his plan right at the beginning. And immediately after the fall of man, God, God already had a plan of redemption. So when Jesus went to that cross and he willingly laid his life down, it was according to the scriptures. He took upon him everything, listen to me, everything God hated about you, Jesus became Romans 5, 8, God commendeth, that means put on display. He showed his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while you were in that mess, he saw you. When there was nothing lovable about you, he loved you. And because he loved you and saw you in your mess and still loved you anyways, he put on display his love through the form of Jesus Christ on the cross. He sent his son to die for you. Now this means everything. Everything you could do, past, present, or future, has been freely and forever forgiven. There's nothing you can bring to the table that the blood of Christ will not cover. Any, let me ask you quick. Anybody messed up lately? Anybody messed up lately? Guess what? Paid for. How many of y'all are probably going to mess up a month from now? Anybody probably going to mess up a month? Paid for. How many of y'all got some regrets, some things you wish you wouldn't have said, some things you wish you wouldn't have done, some people you wish you wouldn't have offended? How many of Paid for. the blood of Christ covers all. And so in the middle of our response to God by pushing him away and and, and, and our rebellion, he comes, he washes you, he sanctifies you, he justifies you, he pulls you up out of your mess, he puts you on solid ground, he cleans you up, and Christ dies for you, not just as your substitute, but also as your representative. In other words, he didn't just die for you, he died instead of you. God is good, isn't he? And then, on top of redeeming us, he's restoring us. See, on the cross of Calvary is when Jesus wrote the check for our sin, but three days later, when he resurrected from that grave, is when the check cleared. It showed us that everything went through, that the payment was good. It was paid in full. And so, we see this in, in verse 6 of First Corinthians chapter 15, that original chapter we started in, 1 Corinthians fifteen six. Actually, you start in verse 5 if you want to. He says in that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. But some are fallen asleep. What is Paul saying? He's saying Jesus is alive. And people saw it with their own eyes. There's five hundred people at one time that saw him alive. And in the flesh he was, he was alive. He wasn't in the grave anymore. This is good news because if Jesus is still in the grave, you are still in your sin. But if Jesus is done, He's resurrected, if Jesus is alive, then everything you have committed, past, present, or future, has been fully, freely, and forever forgiven. This is good news. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. And I don't care what you have done, I don't care what baggage you have, I don't care what skeletons are in your closet. What I care about is have you truly believed the gospel? Because the gospel can handle all that. Have you received the gospel? Because I'm afraid what a lot of people do is they've done behavior modifications. They just try to act better. But I want to tell you right now, if your behavior change is not tied into your faith in Jesus, then everything you think you've accomplished will burn up one day. There's not enough good you could ever do. This, 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 this next part here, this is, we're bringing out the plates. We're setting up the, you can smell it in the kitchen now. We're getting close to Eden. First one of chapter fifteen. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which you also received. And if you write in your Bibles, if you would like to highlight, circle, or anything like that, you need to circle that where it says, "Wherein you stand." Wherein you stand. Why? Because I believe we have been conditioned especially here in America, to believe that the gospel is nothing more than the door you walk through in order to be saved. You pray a prayer and you're good. You're done. You got the gospel. You're saved. But what Paul is saying here, he says, no, the gospel is not the door you walk through. He says the gospel is the house you live in. He says wherein you stand. It is where you live. It is where you reside. The gospel is your home. And this is a big deal. I want us to help us understand. Here's where I'm, man, I really, this is where I'm I'm kind of, the question, are you a Christian? This is where it's all coming to life right here. Okay, are you ready? Are you ready? Because here's my fear. I think there's a lot of people who have lived under the assumption that they're saved when in reality they're not. There's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be where you think you possess salvation, but in reality you don't. How many times have we seen people who've been men who we've presumed to be men or women of God get saved later in life? Because they realize I've done all the all the I put on the mask, I did all the all the acting, but I I didn't have the genuine heart change. And so what I want to help you understand today, we see who God is, we see what man's response is, we see what God did in response to our response, but what does it mean to actually live in the gospel? To stand in the gospel means this that we are set free from our sinful nature. We are set free from our sinful nature. I'm going to have you all jump over again to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. He says this. Paul writes, What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, he's saying, Hey, for those who want to continue on living the life they've always lived... Because they make the excuse, hey, God will forgive me. God is love. God is mercy. God is grace. He will forgive me. I'll just do it one more time. And then I ask God to forgive me. I'll, you know, I don't think God, if God is really loved, then he's not going to have a problem with me living this certain way. And because and, and, there's grace there and there's love there for me. And then Paul responds to that by saying, God forbid. In other words, in a stronger way, he's saying not just no, but no. He says, we don't live that way. If you've been truly transformed by the gospel, then you should have no desire to continue on living the way you used to live. Even though there's grace and there's mercy for you, that should not be an excuse for you to continue on sinning. He says, we shouldn't let God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How you uh, know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. In other words, we have been dead. We've been dead to that now. That that used to be our identity. That's not our identity anymore. We're dead to that. And he says, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? Newness of life. That, That used to be you, but that's not you anymore. You've been given newness of life, you are different. He's saying something very, very clear. He's saying if you want to continue on sinning and you have no problem with it, then you've never died to it in the first place. In other words, you ain't really saved. And I know that is hard to hear in our culture. Because we want to make converts, but not disciples. We want to baptize them, but we don't want to hold them to holiness. We want to plug them into the church, but we don't want to send them out to battle. We have conditioned ourselves to 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 accept the idea of easy believism, which is the idea that you can be a Christian, but have no change. And we hear the, the, the these altar calls given the little kids. OK, who who wants to go to heaven with mommy and daddy or who wants to go to hell and burn forever? I want to go to heaven. OK, let's pray your prayer real quick and you're done. That's terrible this easy believism, this idea that I can, I can accept the gospel, but there'd be no change in my life that I won't actually die to my sin, that I actually won't die to myself. And Paul is making it clear. He says that sinful compulsion that used to be in you, that's not your identity anymore. In 1 John chapter three, okay, I told you it was a little First John some. I know I have you hopping around, but we got to get the picture here. In 1 John, remember John is writing to people who are conflicted about if they really had the true faith. Am I really saved? In 1 John chapter three in verse nine, Paul says it very clearly. This is what it means to stand in the gospel. Paul says it very clearly. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now that word commit, don't get it twisted, because I you know some of y'all just saw that, and you're like, I'll never sin again? Uh-oh. <laughs> like, I sinned this morning. You know, like, that would, be, that would be detrimental for a lot of us if that was really what it meant to be a Christian, is that you never sinned again. That word commit is the Greek word poieo. And it means to practice or to exercise. In other words, whoever is born of God does not make a habit, a practice, a lifestyle of sin. Does that make sense? That makes sense? He says, for his seed remaineth in him. All right, all right, so it so doesn't make it a, a, a habit in their life. A, a born again believer does not make concessions and justifications for their sin. If you continue on in that same chapter, First John chapter 3, back up a couple verses to verse 7. John says this, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So here's what he's saying. John is saying this very clearly. You cannot say that you are righteous if you don't practice righteousness in your life. It would be like me doing this. I come up to you. I'm like, did you know I play for Alabama football? And you're like, really? Yeah, yeah, I play for, Crimson Tide, Roll Tide, you know. And you're like, what's your jersey number? I, I don't really have a jersey. <laughs> All right, well, I mean, tell me, what's it like working out with Bryce Young? Is, I mean, what's it like with the football team? Are they, are they really big? I'm like, i never met him. I can't tell you. <laughs> All right, well, Nick Saban, how's he? I mean, he seems like a pretty kind of like a real curmudgeon. Is he really that mean? You're like, man, a bucket list goal of mine is to meet Nick Saban one day. I want to do that, but I've never even been to Tuscaloosa. I, I don't know. All right, would you believe I was a football player at that point? No. If I told you I played for Alabama football, but nothing in my life resembles that I played Alabama football, you would say, you are a liar. <laughs> yet how many people do we hear say, I'm a Christian, yet nothing in their life resembles a Christian, and we say, okay. Paul, John, all of them will say, if you are a Christian, there should be some kind of evidence in your life that God has changed you. You cannot say you are righteous if you don't practice righteousness. What does it mean to practice righteousness? It means that your character, your conduct, everything about your conscience would be different and changed. It means you are a person of integrity. It's a person who who chases after God. There should be some evidence inside of you. Yet here we are walking around with the name Christian, yet there's nothing in our life that resembles Christianity. That is a problem. The theme we see over and over and over again in 1 John is this idea of practicing righteousness. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, it says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Romans 6, 18, you don't have to turn there, you can write it down and go there later. He says, being free from sin, you become servants of righteousness. There should be a change in a believer's life. There should be evidence. Now, can a believer get to a place where maybe we call it backslidden Sure. Sure. Maybe there's a believer that has kind of allowed concessions for sin. They've kind of allowed things into their life, and they don't fight things anymore. Maybe they have some past things that they used to really fight against, but now they're allowing it in their life. They're not putting up guards in their life anymore. They're, 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 they're allowing things to kind of t- come into their, their life. And there's no longer any pushback against those things. Sure. That can happen. Absolutely. But according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Whoever is born of God doth not commit sin, make it a practice. Why? Why is it not possible to make it a practice? Because for his seed remaineth in him. What is his seed? It is God's word. It is God's nature. It is God's spirit that has been placed inside every believer. So as you go for a while, you might enjoy sin. You might make concessions for sins. You might, you might, you might enjoy sin for as a season. But eventually, God is going to clean your clock. God is going to make, uh, make it known that he is not in agreement with your lifestyle, your sin. Why? Because God in you cannot make way for a pattern of sinful behavior in your life. And so in Hebrews, we read in Hebrews twelve six: for who the, lo- the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Who the Lord loveth, he whoopeth, he spanketh. All right, that's what the Lord does. He will get your attention. And so, yeah, a believer in Christ can absolutely live in sin for a moment. But that seed inside of you won't let you stay there long. He will come alive and he will wreck you. He will get your attention. He will kill that apathy, uh, uh, that all those things that you, that you are, are kind of convenient with. No, he'll, he'll kill that. That's what it means to stand in the gospel is that we die to our sinful nature. To stand in the gospel means this too, that we practice confession and repentance. We practice conf- If we're 99% known to the Lord and we're holding on to 1% behind our back, God, you can have all of this, but this right here is mine. If you're 99% known to the Lord and you're holding on to 1%, that 1% is enough for the enemy to use to wreck you, to destroy you. It's enough space for him to get into your life and pull you out of your calling and out of your destiny. And that's what the enemy will do. He'll, he'll take that 1% that you're afraid to let go of, that 1% you're scared to confess, that 1% many times we're scared to confess it because we actually kind of enjoy it. And so we hold on to it just a little bit longer. He will use that against you. He will make you believe that because of that one thing in your life, God cannot use you. So you better sit on the sidelines and watch the professionals do it because you are not good enough to participate. And so that 1% is enough for the Lord to li- to, 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 uh, for enough for the enemy to use against you. Here's what I want to do. I want to live my life in such a way that I'm not worried about what you might find out about me. Let me say that again. I want to live my life in such a way that I'm not scared about what you might find out about me. Can I just be honest with y'all for a second? Y'all, y'all let me be honest, transparent. I know what my vulnerabilities are. I know where my weaknesses are. You do too. If you don't invite accountability into those areas, then you will struggle with that for the rest of your life. If you're a lady in this place, you need to find a godly woman that you can trust, that you can invite into those places that you struggle. If you're a man in this place, you need to invite a godly man to come inside, uh, into, your, into your safe place and, and mentor you and, and keep you accountable on staff every staff member has accountability software and this I'm just going to be honest every staff member has accountability software on their computer for obvious reasons right we don't want to you know we want to have accountability as our staff but beyond that I've put accountability software on my cell phone I put accountability software on my iPad I put accountability software on my personal laptop my wife has every uh, has access to every Instagram account every every Facebook account every message I get goes straight to her Everything that I do, she sees, she has access to, she gets alerts. If I ever, ever try to search for anything explicit, if I ever try to search for something or send a message that's explicit or receive a message that's explicit, she immediately, Pastor Malcolm, Dustin, immediately are alerted. Why? Because I don't want to give room for the 1%. I've seen too many pastors fail. I've seen too many of my friends in ministry fail because they would not invite accountability and confession into their life, and they held on to that 1%, thinking, I got this. Meanwhile, the enemy absolutely destroyed them. To stand in the gospel means that we are fully known before God. Now, here comes the food, and we're done. We see what it means to stand in the gospel. We see what man has done to God's, we see what God's response is to that. Here's my question Are you really a Christian? The idea that you can just say a prayer and that's it, and there's no change, there's no hatred of sin, there's no righteousness, there's no desire to to study the word, there's no desire to pray. There's no desire to share your faith. There's no desire in you to grow close, closer to God. There's, no, there's nothing in you that's drawing you. You're, you're com- completely comfortable living in sin. You're completely comfortable making concessions for sin. You're completely comfortable justifying your sin. You have no problem with things in your life. According to Scripture, are you a Christian? Because the invitation to follow Jesus sounds a lot like what Jesus said to the large crowd in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He turns to this large crowd and looks at them and he says to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, they must die himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow me. To follow Christ means you die. Have you died? The danger I've found, especially in the South, is that we can have no hatred of our sin and no desire to follow Jesus. Yet we're Christians. That's scary. Because there's going to be a day where we stand before him. He's going to say, depart from me because I never knew you. Are you a Christian? Now let me help you. I want everybody to picture a vine. Your life is this vine. Picture this vine. I want you to study this vine. Is there any fruit on this vine? Maybe it's small. Maybe maybe it's, it's tiny, but it's there. Maybe there is some kind of sin in your life that you absolutely, you hate it. And it's not because of the consequences of that sin, but it's because it's hurting your relationship with God. And, and, and there's, you just, you're really struggling with this sin. Hey, there's a fruit there, though. That's good. That's something small, but it's there. Maybe you start studying your vine and you realize you know, you really want to try to get closer to God and you start these new programs and you get a devotional and you do really good for like a week and then you kind of forget about it and you come back to it and maybe you start a prayer journal and you get like three or four entries into it and then you, you start over again you come back to it. But, you know, there is something inside of you that does want to know God more. That's something, there's, there's a little bit of fruit. There's some evidence there. But I'm pleading with you. Evaluate. Make your calling and election sure. In Hebrews chapter 4, you can read this later, the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews is talking about a rest that we get to enter into in faith. In other words, believers in Christ who absolutely know they are saved are able to rest in that in God. Do you worry at night? Are you anxious about, am I going to heaven Are you anxious about, do I really possess salvation? Am I really saved? Does that bother you? Does that worry you? Does that cause anxious thoughts? Do you have that rest? Because Scripture promises us that as believers in Christ who possess true salvation, we can rest in God. First John chapter 5:13. John writes all of this. All the first John, remember to believers who are con- confused and, and trying to sort out if they have salvation. John says in First John 5:13, "These things I've written unto you so that you may know you have eternal life." You don't have to question it. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to be anxious about it. You can know and you can have rest. But if you have no rest and you don't know, then that means you might want to start asking some questions. If your life does not model that of a Christian, you might want to ask some questions. If you have no hatred towards sin, you might want to ask some questions. Y'all hearing me? You might know some people who say with their mouth, I'm a Christian, but their life says something completely different. You might want to talk to them. Just because mommy and poppy were deacons in the church don't mean nothing. Just because you said a VBS prayer when you were four years old and you have absolutely no no idea what that meant, I would check up on that. Can I be honest with you again, be transparent? I got saved three times. (laughs) Anybody in here been baptized more than once? Anybody in here said the prayer for salvation more than once? We're in good company. I was six years old. I came forward. I talked to my stepmom and my dad. I told them I wanted to be saved. I didn't really know what it meant, to be honest with you. I just know that, you know, I was in church. I knew about Jesus down on the cross. And so I said a prayer. I got baptized. I got a little New Testament with my name in it and the date that I was baptized. I, look, I don't have a clue. What, I, I, that, I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest with you. Then at 13... And for years, it's the testimony I told people. I told people at 13, I've said it here on the stage. At 13, I got saved. I was invited to church, First Baptist Church at Tillman's Corner in Mobile, Alabama. I was invited by my friend Ryan Conklin and we sat in there and I prayed a prayer with this old man deacon down at the front of the church and I got saved. And then I told people when I was 17 is when I rededicated my life to Christ. But you know what? And until recently when we started writing these my story tracks and start passing them out that God really revealed to me that at 13, I wasn't really saved either. Because at 13, there was absolutely no life change. Matter of fact, at the age of 13, I started acting even more like a hellion. I came off the rails. I think the reason I I went down and prayed at the age of 13 is because my life was kind of hard at the moment. I thought maybe God could fix it. And so I was kind of just inviting God to come into my life and make everything better. I wanted his stuff, but I didn't want him. And so... At 13, I really didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was just looking for a quick fix. But at 17, I remember coming home after a Wednesday night service and I got into my room and I got down on that that ugly carpet and I began to cry and I began to, uh, big old tears fall down. And I said, God, I'm done fighting. I'm done trying on my own. I've done messed up so much. The only way I'm gonna get out of this is if you do it for me. It was just that simple. And I began to cry. Within three weeks of that moment, all of my negative influences, all those friends that was bringing me down, we quit talking to each other. Within a couple months of that prayer, I started dating a girl named Tracy Carter, who I eventually changed her name to Tracy (laughs) Heptonstall. Within six months of that prayer, God gave me a clear calling into ministry. I look back at the age of 17, and I say, that's it. That's when I got it, because there was evidence. I hated my sin. I wanted to know God more. I wanted to chase after him better. I wanted to pursue him well. I wanted to live for him. I wanted every relationship I had to be an example of him. I wanted to enjoy my relationship and give him glory at the same time. Everything began to get restored back to the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. Does that make sense? And so this is what God intends for your life. He wants to redeem you. He wants to restore you. He wants to invite you into fellowship. He wants you to live right. He wants you to hate your sin. And if you're not doing that, are you a Christian? I can't answer that question. It's for you to know. It's for you to know. But I believe that God has been talking to you this morning. You might want to do some business. You might want to settle that.